0: Welcome, everyone, to another regularly scheduled rerun. As you probably know, more attention is being paid to the potential reorganization of the Democratic Party recently after several progressives, most notably Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, won their primary elections against establishment Democrats. Most of these candidates and lots of their supporters are explicitly critical of capitalism as we know it. So today, I wanted to pull up an episode from last year that I think does a good job of making the case for why the status quo economic system just can't be maintained and why so many people are rising up against it, demanding something better. As for Best of the Left members, they got a new bonus episode in their feed today in which Amanda and I discuss what I ended up calling the Roadmap to Hope. And boy, how good does that sound right now? Uh, we talked about some of the recent primary elections and the Democratic Party establishment, but also took the broad view on why there is so much potential for hope right now, including the culture shift we're witnessing and some structural changes that I can see on the horizon that may open up the doors for dramatic change. So to hear that and for access to all of our past and future members episodes and support the work that goes into this show, of course, sign up as a member at patreon.com slash Left or visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com, And now, enjoy.
1: The notion that capitalism is here forever, that it is the greatest system since sliced bread, this is a self-delusional idea because of the fear of change, the fear of the unknown, the fear of wondering what comes next if the system we've become used to were to fall apart.
0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do, get commercial-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content, find us on Patreon, or visit the Contributes tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Caitlin Moran at Politics and Prose, a TED Talk by Casey Gerald, ideas from the CBC in two parts, and the Innovative Economics podcast, Upstream.
2: I have heard in the last two years the word revolution mentioned more times than I did in the preceding 20. In protest groups, at meetings, and overwhelmingly online, I have heard people talking about revolution as if it is the coming thing, a necessary thing. Occupy, Syriza, Podemos, the Arab Spring, the near breakup of the United Kingdom during the referendum. We slip into talk of revolution constantly these days. We presume a change is coming. Personally, I am thrilled with the current fashionableness of the word revolution because I like the word revolution. It is my third favourite word after cathedral, chagrin and cumberbatch. (laughs) But I should make it clear, I like the word revolution as it's defined in the second entry in the dictionary and not the first. The dictionary's first definition of the word revolution is this, rebellion, revolt, revolt. Mutiny, riot, insurgency, overthrow, anarchy, regime change and disorder. And personally, I'm not up for that. The kind of people who are up for mutinies and riots and violent change tend to be young men, the kind for whom an afternoon of being uh, kettled by 600 policemen before breaking free and wanging a brick through the window of Dunkin' Donuts feels like a life-affirming alternative to sport. I, on the other hand, am a 41-year-old woman with very inferior running abilities (laughs) and two children. So I don't like riots. I don't like anarchy. I've read enough history books to be resoundingly unkeen on extreme politics of either the left or the right. Breakdowns in society, anarchy, overthrows of uh, seizures of power and disorder because they tend to work out really badly for women and children. They tend to work out really badly for everyone. My general rule of thumb, and as I say this, this is so, so much more true now than it was when I wrote it. My general rule of thumb is that you're always a little bit closer to the conditions that led to the outbreak of the Second World War than you think you are. I know, right? Bye-bye, <laughs> NATO. Um, which is why I'm all for political and economic stability, non tumultuous cultural change, and the bins continuing to be emptied on time. I like order, and I like calm, and I like not googling how to get slash hide gun case in case of breakdown of society. <laughs> That's why the revolution I like is the second dictionary definition. Revolution, sea change, metamorphosis, transformation, Innovation, regrouping, and reorientation. Now, those are the kind of revolutions that I can get behind. Metamorphoses and sea changes, a revolution that sounds like the moment in The Wizard of Oz, where it goes from black and white into color, or when Cinderella's ball gown appears around her in a blaze of fairy godmother magic. We don't want an upheaval, we just want an upgrade, Even the most entrenched conservative would find it difficult to argue with the idea of a notable upgrade of the way that we currently do things politically and economically. Capitalism has been the defining political movement of my age, but it has not gone through any thoughtful planned improvements in my lifetime. By way of contrast, I've lived through 10 OS upgrades on my Mac. (laughs) And that's just something I used to buy play suits from on Topshop and piss around on Twitter. Capitalism is surely due an upgrade or two. We need snow leopard capitalism or Yosemite capitalism. (laughs) Isn't that the fundamental point of capitalism anyway, of competition and markets and choice? It's kind of weird that under market-led capitalism that we can get 300 different kinds of latte, but only one kind of market-led capitalism. So we need an upgrade. We need a change. This is what people want. This is what the talk is all about. But what will that upgrade be? Where will this upgrade come from? Well, the answer is obvious. It is us. We are the big obvious resource of our age. And we are the key and unique resource of our age because in all of history up until now, most of our processing power has gone to waste. Unless someone with a brilliant mind had the good fortune to be born into circumstances of being male, not dying of a terrible disease before the age of three, and being able to afford an education and a social situation, usually predicated on location and wealth, which enabled him to spread these ideas, all these incredible ideas that we've had through history have died in the minds of their owners. This, then, is always the ultimate argument for the urgency and necessity of equality. Equality isn't some fabulous luxury that we treat ourselves to when we're rich enough or comfortable enough or happy enough. The legislation and infrastructure that we get round to after we secure our economies or wrangle our foreign policy. Equality isn't humanity's cashmere bedstocks. It's not a present we treat ourselves to like champagne. Equality is a fundamental necessity like water. And that is because in the 21st century, humanity's greatest resource is not oil or titanium or gold or water or tech. It's brains. The real reason more unequal countries are so troubled is to be brusque because they are more stupid. They disregard their female populations and thereby halving their potential brain power. And so while we keep these billions of tons of brains offline, we put humanity in an illogically difficult position. By believing some people to be naturally superior, and therefore the only ones who should be in charge, we make our species as a whole inferior and weaker, and to be frank, stupid. So it's little wonder that we have such a small incestuous slice of the population representing us politically, because politics have become devalued. These days, if your child announced that they wanted to be a politician, most people would react as if they had come down to the breakfast table and said, mother, father, father. I've decided to become a massive pervert. (laughs) Our default belief is that politicians are venal, shifty, double-dealing liars, out to serve the interests of their friends and their business associates. It's hard for an honourable man or woman or asexual to say that they wish to run a government without instantly being suspected of slight evil. And that is, to use a scientific phrase, balls. Because there's no point in having a democracy if we distrust everyone who wants to engage with it officially. If in the very act of trying to gain power, you lose the trust of the people you wish to represent. That by wanting to stand for something, you are presumed to be wanting to stand only for yourself. There, the entire notion of being a public servant, a key tenet of the modern age, and democracy itself, fails.
3: You say you
4: There we were, souls and bodies packed into a Texas church on the last night of our lives. Packed into a room just like this, but with creaky wooden pews draped in worn down red fabric. With an organ to my left and a choir at my back and a baptism pool built into the wall behind them. A room like this, nonetheless. With the same great feelings of suspense, the same deep hopes for salvation, the same sweat in the palms and the same people in the back not paying attention. (laughs) This was December 31st, 1999, the night of the second coming of Christ and the end of the world as I knew it. I had turned 12 that year, had reached the age of accountability, and uh, once I stopped complaining about how unfair it was that Jesus would return as soon as I had to be accountable for all that I had done, uh, I figured I had better get my house in order very quickly. So I went to church as often as I could, I listened for silence, as anxiously as one might listen for noise, trying to be sure that the Lord hadn't pulled a fast one on me and decided to come back early. And just in case he did, I built a backup plan by reading the left-behind books that were all the rage at the time, and I found in their pages that if I was not taken in the rapture at midnight, I had another shot. All I had to do was avoid taking the mark of the beast, fight off demons, plagues, and the Antichrist himself. It would be hard, <laughs> but I knew I could do it. The planning time was over now, it was 11.50 p.m., we had 10 minutes left, and my pastor called us out of the pews and down to the altar because he wanted to be praying when midnight struck. So every faction of the congregation took its place. The choir stayed in the choir stand, the deacons and their wives, or the Baptist bourgeoisie, as I like to call them, (laughs) uh, took first position in front of the altar. You see, in America, Even the Second Coming of Christ has a VIP section. (laughs) And right behind the Baptist bourgeoisie were the elderly, these men and women whose young backs had been bent under hot suns in the cotton fields of East Texas, and whose skin seemed to be burnt a creaseless, noble brown, just like the clay of East Texas and whose hopes and dreams for what life might become outside of East Texas has sometimes been bent and broken even further than their backs. Yes, these men and women were the stars of the show for me. They awaited their whole lives for this moment, just as their medieval predecessors had longed for the end of the world. And just as my grandmother waited for the Oprah Winfrey show to come on Channel 8 every day at 4 o'clock. And as she made her way to the altar, I snuck right in behind her, because I knew for sure that my grandmother was going to heaven, and I thought that if I held on to her hand during this prayer, I might go right on with her. So I held on, and I closed my eyes to listen, to wait. And the prayers got louder, and the shouts of response to the call of the prayer went up higher even still. And the organ rolled on in to add to the dirge, and the heat came on to add to the sweat. And my hand gripped firmer so I wouldn't be the one left in the field, and my eyes clenched tighter so I wouldn't see the wheat being separated from the chaff. And then a voice rang out above us, Amen. It was over. I looked at the clock. It was after midnight. I looked at the elder believers whose savior had not come, who were too proud to show any signs of disappointment, who had believed too much and for too long to start doubting now. But I was upset on their behalf. They had been duped, hoodwinked, bamboozled, and I had gone right along with them. I had prayed their prayers, I had yielded not to temptation as best I could. I had dipped my head not once but twice in that snot-inducing baptism pool I had believed. (laughs) Now what? I got home just in time to turn on the television and watch Peter Jennings announce the new millennium as it rolled in around the world, and it struck me that it would have been strange, anyway, for Jesus to come back again and again based on the different time zones. And this made me feel even more ridiculous. (laughs) Hurt, really. But there on that night, I did not stop believing. I just believed a new thing, that it was possible not to believe. It was possible the answers I had were wrong, that the questions themselves were wrong. And now, where there was once a mountain of certitude, there was running right down to its foundation, a spring of doubt spring that promised rivers. But I can trace the whole drama of my life back to that night in that church when my Savior did not come for me, when the thing I believed most certainly turned out to be, if not a lie, then not quite the truth. And even though most of you prepared for Y2K in a very different way, I'm convinced that you are here because some part of you has done the same thing that I have done since the dawn of this new century, since my mother left and my father stayed away and my Lord refused to come. And I held out my hand, reaching for something to believe in. I held on when I arrived at Yale at 18, with the faith that my journey from Oak Cliff, Texas, was a chance to leave behind all the challenges I had known, the broken dreams and broken bodies I had seen. But when I found myself Back home, one winter break, with my face planted in the floor, and my hands tied behind my back, and a burglar's gun pressed in my head, I knew. that even the best education couldn't save me. I held on when I showed up at Lehman Brothers as an intern in 2008. (laughs) So hopeful that uh, that I called home to inform my family that we'd never be poor again. But as I witnessed this temple of finance come crashing down before my eyes, I knew that even the best job couldn't save me. I held on when I showed up in Washington, D.C. as a young staffer who had heard a voice call out from Illinois saying, it's been a long time coming, but in this election, change has come to America. But as the Congress ground to a halt and the country ripped at the seams and hope and change began to feel like a cruel joke, I knew that even the political second coming could not save me. I had knelt faithfully at the altar of the American dream, praying to the gods of my time, of success and money and power. But over and over again, midnight struck. And I opened my eyes to see that all these gods were dead. And from that graveyard, I began the search once more, not because I was brave, but because I knew that I would either believe or I would die. So I took a pilgrimage to yet another Mecca, Harvard Business School. (laughs) This time knowing that I could not simply accept the salvation that it claimed to offer. No, I knew there'd be more work to do. The work began in the dark corner of a crowded party on the late night of an early, miserable Cambridge winter, when three friends and I asked a question that young folks searching for something real have asked for a very long time, what if we took a road trip? <laughs> we didn't know where we'd go or how we'd get there, but we knew we had to do it, because all our lives we'd yearned, as Jack Kerouac wrote, to sneak out into the night and disappear somewhere, and go find out what everybody was doing all over the country. So even though there were other voices who said that the risk was too great and the proof too thin, we went on anyhow. We went on 8,000 miles across America in the summer of 2013, through the cow pastures of Montana, through the desolation of Detroit, through the swamps of New Orleans, where we found and worked with men and women who were building small businesses that made purpose their bottom line. And having been trained at the West Point of Capitalism, this struck us as a revolutionary idea. And this idea spread, growing into a nonprofit called MBAs Across America, a movement that landed me here on this stage today. It spread because we found a great hunger in our generation for purpose, for meaning. It spread because we found countless entrepreneurs in the nooks and crannies of America who were creating jobs and changing lives and who needed a little help. But if I'm being honest, it also spread because I fought to spread it. There was no length to which I would not go to preach this gospel, to get more people to believe that we could bind the wounds of a broken country, one social business at a time. But it was this journey of evangelism that led me to the rather different gospel that I've come to share with you today. It began one evening, almost a year ago, at uh, the Museum of Natural History in New York City, at a gala for alumni of Harvard Business School. Under a full-size replica of a whale, I sat with the titans of our time as they celebrated their peers and their good deeds. There was pride in a room where net worth and assets under management surpassed half a trillion dollars. We looked over all that we had made, and it was good. (laughs) But it just so happened, two days later, I had to travel up the road to Harlem, where I found myself sitting in an urban farm that had once been a vacant lot listening to a man named Tony tell me of the kids that showed up there every day. All of them lived below the poverty line. Many of them carried all of their belongings in a backpack to avoid losing them in a homeless shelter. Some of them came to Tony's program called Harlem Grown to get the only meal they had each day. Tony told me that he started Harlem Grown with money from his pension, After 20 years as a cab driver, he told me that he didn't give himself a salary, because despite success, the program struggled for resources. He told me that he would take any help that he could get, and I was there as that help. But as I left Tony, I felt the sting and salt of tears welling up in my eyes. I felt the weight of revelation, that I could sit in one room on one night where a few hundred people had half a trillion dollars and another room 2 days later just 50 blocks up the road where a man was going without a salary to get a child her only meal of the day and it wasn't the glaring inequality that made me want to cry it wasn't the thought of hungry, homeless kids. It wasn't rage toward the 1% or pity toward the 99. I was disturbed because i finally realized that I was the dialysis for a country that needed a kidney transplant. I realized that my story stood in for all those who were expected to pick themselves up by their bootstraps, even if they didn't have any boots that my organization stood in for all the structural, systemic help that never went to Harlem or Appalachia or the Lower Ninth Ward, that my voice stood in for all those voices that seemed too unlearned, too unwashed, too unaccommodated. And the shame of that, that shame washed over me like the shame of sitting in front of the television, watching Peter Jennings announce the new millennium again, and again, and again. I had been duped, hoodwinked, bamboozled, but this time, the false savior was me. You see, I've come a long way from that altar on the night I thought the world would end, from a world where people spoke in tongues and saw suffering as a necessary act of God and took a text to be infallible truth. Yes, I've come so far, and I'm right back where I started. Because it simply is not true to say we live in an age of disbelief. No, we believe today just as much as any time that came before. Some of us may believe in the prophecy of Brene Brown or Tony Robbins. We may believe in the Bible of the New Yorker or the Harvard Business Review. We may believe most deeply when we worship right here at the church of Ted, but we desperately want to believe. We need to believe. We speak in the tongues of charismatic leaders that promise to solve all our problems. We see suffering as a necessary act of the capitalism that is our God. We take the text of technological progress to be infallible truth. And we hardly realize the human price we pay when we fail to question one brick because we fear it might shake our whole foundation. But if you are disturbed, by the unconscionable things that we have come to accept, then it must be questioning time. So I have not a gospel of disruption or innovation or a triple bottom line. I do not have a gospel of faith to share with you today, in fact. I have and I offer a gospel of doubt. The gospel of doubt does not ask that you stop believing. It asks that you believe a new thing, that it is possible not to believe. It is possible the answers we have are wrong. It is possible the questions themselves are wrong. Yes, the gospel of doubt means that it is possible that we, on this stage, in this room, are wrong. Because it raises the question, why? With all the power that we hold in our hands, why are people still suffering so bad? This doubt leads me to share that we are putting my organization, MBAs Across America, out of business. We have shared our staff and closed our doors, and we will share our model freely with anyone who sees their power to do this work without waiting for our permission. This doubt compels me to renounce the role of savior that some have placed on me, because our time is too short and our odds are too long to wait for second comings when the truth is that there will be no miracles here. And this doubt, it fuels me, it gives me hope, that when our troubles overwhelm us, when the paths laid out for us seem to lead to our demise, when our healers bring no comfort to our wounds, it will not be our blind faith, no, it will be our humble doubt that shines a little light into the darkness of our lives and of our world and lets us raise our voice to whisper, or to shout, or to say simply, very simply, there must be another way. A shared power that grows selfless, means I'm only free, everyone else is. These are the bootstraps you hang us with, as you watch the world burn through the window of a cruise ship, and keep it moving, over the homeless people sleeping, and the refugees fleeing, they might buy you off with a mansion on a prairie, just don't ask where the bodies are buried. God, when you hit the world, it's
5: Wolfgang Street directs the Max Planck Institute for the Study of Societies in Cologne, Germany. The title of his most recent book is both somber and unnerving. How Will Capitalism End?
6: The end of capitalism can then be imagined as a death from a thousand cuts or from a multiplicity of infirmities, each of which will be all the more untreatable as all will demand treatment at the same time. As will become apparent, I do not believe that any of the potentially stabilizing forces, be it regime pluralism, regional diversity and uneven development, political reform or independent crisis cycles, will be strong enough to neutralize the syndrome of accumulated weaknesses that characterize contemporary capitalism. Contemporary capitalism is vanishing on its own, collapsing from internal contradictions, and not least as a result of having vanquished its enemies, who have often rescued capitalism from itself by forcing it to assume a new form.
5: Contemporary capitalism is vanishing on its own. That's an enormous thought, and and because it's so big, I think, sort of a frightening one. It is.
6: And uh, if one has to elaborate on this, one would say that uh, capitalism is not just uh, people making profits. It it always had to be a social order that supported profit-making. And in order for this to be possible... You had to have some uh, governance, some mechanism of uh, uh, containing the capitalist core of the of society, and holding it responsive and responsible to the social needs of people who would uh, legitimate, provide legitimacy. Uh, to the capitalist organization of the economy. And uh, in practice, if if you look back at uh, leading theories of capitalism, this sort of fragility, the need for the capitalist economy to be embedded in a social order, was always present in the theories of capitalism from John Stuart Mill to uh, John Maynard Keynes and in between Karl Marx, uh, Schumpeter, each of whom expected capitalism to come to an end in their own lifetime as a result of, their, of its internal contradictions. And rather than, rather than now saying, well, these people must have misunderstood something, Uh, I think the insight one draws from this is first of all how fragile the system is and how contingent on uh, its being rescued uh, by opposing forces that contain it and keep it um, sort of useful uh, to the surrounding society.
5: When did you realize that it was actually coming to an end? When did you come to that realization?
6: My uh, moment of... uh, Uh, rethinking uh, uh, social scientific theories of social change and social development was in 2008. 2008 sort of told me that uh, the capitalization of social and economic life can reach a point where uh, things can happen that can tear apart the fabric uh, of modern society in a matter of a very short time.
5: And so it was the it was the economic collapse of 2008 with the fall of Wall Street and, and the collapse of uh, basically the system that, that led you to believe that this is it, we've reached the end.
6: Um, the, more precisely, that it convinced me that we have to rethink theories of social development In terms of allowing for the possibility of a major breakdown, even in the absence of a new order waiting to be introduced, uh, possibly a better order to be introduced uh, as a successing or succeeding order uh, when the old order disappears. So the notion of a linear Progress, or as I say uh, in in a more sort of tongue in cheek way, the the Bolshevist notion of the end of capitalism. Bolshevist, because there is a party waiting that has a blueprint for a new society and that takes power and announces capitalism is over. From now on, we have whatever, socialism or, or whatever. I thought that this was too simple and that one has to allow for the possibility. That the thing becomes uh, sort of extremely fragile and tenuous, even without an opposition being uh, able to replace it in fact from from this from this uh, figure of thought, it is not difficult to see that in the past it was very often the opposition to capitalism that secured its future life in a changed uh, adjusted form so so one can say that uh, uh, capitalism stabilized itself through its opposition and now my sort of intuition after <laughs> in in the 2000s was to look around and see where is the opposition and there are good reasons to argue in in a global uh, capitalist economy the capacity of society to organize an effective opposition to the proper dynamics of capitalism is extremely low. In fact, we do not see such an opposition that is comparable to, for example, the social democratic or socialist or communist parties that in the nation states of the 19th and early 20th century provided, so to speak, the containment for the capitalist core. I, I I read with it's not just academics. I, I read with great interest the uh, uh, the um, recent book of um, Mervyn King, the, the, who for a long time was the governor of the Bank of England, very much in the hardcore, you can say, in the heart of darkness of <laughs> of, of uh, financialized capitalism, uh, writing a book uh, where he uh, which is called the End of Alchemy. Uh, where he says we're facing an era of great uncertainty in which even insiders do not know uh, how to handle the, uh, uh, the, the the contingencies that are now being uh, unfolding before our eyes, and, and we have no theory to understand what is going on. and if an insider like this argues like that, I think we're entitled to take that seriously. My main argument or, or my main sort of contemporary argument about the, about contemporary capitalism is that we have lost these institutions in the process of globalization that has disempowered nation states, trade unions, regulatory agencies, and so on, and resulted in uh, the enormous growth, both in uh, surprising uh, uh, events and defenselessness of a growing number of people against the uh, uh, dynamics of capitalist progress, which is how I explain why in in our countries that are still democracies, we now have this uh, enormous increase in political discontent that has resulted in the election of uh, Donald Trump, in Brexit, in the impending a possible election of Marine Le Pen as president of France in the political fragmentation and stagnation of the Mediterranean countries in Europe. Uh, also, I would like to add, in the growing number of failed states on the periphery of uh, of the capitalist system, where the idea of some sort of uh, managed uh, um, capitalist uh, uh, growth and development that existed in the 1950s and
5: 1960s after decolonialization uh, has become less and less credible. You, you say at one point in the book, infinite growth in a finite world, but that, that sounds like it was unsustainable from the beginning. It didn't just develop into something that was unsustainable.
6: And, and it is important to to, uh, to keep in mind that uh, all the major theorists of capitalism uh, in, in, in particular, John Stuart Mill, but also Marx, uh, actually understood that the inherent uh, lack of uh, a capacity for self-limitation was an important cause of instability. Now, in all these theories, you see that they did not anticipate certain capacities, of course, for example, technological development, to stretch uh, to uh, by time until the moment when growth uh, hits uh, the wall, so to speak, the,
4: less you shed, the more you fall.
1: I think what we have is a economic system which, for the first time in my life, is not only experiencing yet another one of its periodic downturns, which, to be fair, we can emerge from. I don't see it right now, which is already a sign. I don't see how that's going to happen. But I also know, it's a kind of a gut feeling, I wouldn't want to claim more for it than that, that this is a level of interrelated problems, domestic, foreign, manufacturing, services, urban, rural, across the board of dysfunction, tension, trouble, so that for the first time in my life, I think it's possible that this system is done. And let me say a word about that, Uh Every economic system before capitalism, and we've had quite a few, was born, evolved over time, and died, passed away. Once upon a time, most of the world was organized as a slave economy. Slave economy characterized by some people who do the work called slaves, and some people who reap the benefit called masters, master, slave. Thousands of years in various parts of the world. It's mostly gone now. It was born, it evolved over time, it died. Feudalism, okay, different system. Not master-slave, lord and serf. Exists in Europe from roughly 500 to 1500 AD, a thousand years of feudalism. Different kind of system, born, evolved, died. It's replaced by capitalism, which is born, evolved, and then will die. The burden is not on me to say that it will die. The burden is on anyone to think that it wouldn't when every other one has. But the notion that capitalism is here forever, that it is the greatest system since sliced bread, a point of view, by the way, shared by everybody in feudalism for a thousand years and before that by everybody in slavery, This is a self-delusional idea because of the fear of change, the fear of the unknown, the fear of wondering what comes next if the system we've become used to uh, were to fall apart. But since every other system did, it's only the height of rationality to begin to think, especially when you're at a time of great difficulty, which we are. To think about, is this maybe the end? And if it is, where do we go? What do we do? How do we manage this situation? Once you open that door, which, by the way, is kept very closed in this country, for example, the presidential race between Trump and Clinton, not one word was ever uttered by either candidate to raise even the question that the capitalist system that we are living in might be coming to an end, might be in a terminal illness, might be in a critical stage where it's very exit—no, No, 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 no. The presumption that everything is capitalist, that the relationship of employer to employee is somehow permanent in a way that master-slave wasn't, lord-serf wasn't, employer-employee, guess what? It doesn't have to be that way. In fact, throughout the history of the human race, people have had other ways of organizing it. And then, as this percolates through people's mind, it becomes possible to recognize what the alternatives are, and then the sort of aha moment when you begin to realize that those alternatives, they're already here. People are already finding ways to protect themselves as individuals from going down with the capitalist ship. And the minute you recognize that possibility, you see it all around. It's a little bit like people who have the flu. And they say, oh, my goodness, I have the flu. And then they start talking to their friends and they find out half their friends have the flu. It, somehow when it hits you, you become aware that it isn't just you, that there are loads of folks who share this. And that's happening now across this planet as people begin to realize what do, what are the alternatives to capitalism? How could we otherwise organize? And might some of these alternatives Be much better than the capitalist. Might, might we get to the point of looking on the passing of capitalism, not as a horrible collapse to worry about, but as an opening, as a possibility, as a liberation to welcome, as happened with the transition from slavery to feudalism, from feudalism to capitalism. I mean, I like to tell my students, if you study the transition from feudalism to capitalism, you discover that the artistic icons of western culture are all about that let me give you an example the music of beethoven which we celebrate is the celebration by a german artist of the end of feudalism and the arrival in this case of the french revolution which he was celebrating The whole notion, if you listen to the Ninth Symphony, is supposedly his greatest, the ode to joy, the the choral part of the last part of the symphony, is a celebration of the rights of man, of the the slogans of the French Revolution, which he welcomed, you know, the... The Renaissance is the beginning of the end of feudalism. It's the celebration of the rediscovery of what existed before feudalism, ancient Rome and so on, in a new form, a renaissance in French, the rebirth of a society that wouldn't be feudal anymore. It's on and on and on. So we have to understand that the transition from one system to another not only can be, but typically has been viewed As a liberational, progressive moment in human history, the French Revolution, the American Revolution, the British Revolution, those are now retrospectively seen as the opening of capitalism, the wonderful thing. My guess is we are on the verge of a transition that will also, in its time, be understood as a breakthrough to something new, difficult as all such breakthroughs are.
4: Treasures
3: here Dug our treasures there. Can you still recall time we cry? Break off new to the other side. Break off new to the other side.
6: In a world without system integration, social integration has to carry the entire burden of structuration as long as no new order begins to settle in. The desocialized capitalism of the interregnum hinges on the improvised performances of structurally self-centered, socially disorganized and politically disempowered individuals. Four broad types of behaviors are required of the users of post-capitalist social networks for the precarious reproduction of their entropic social life, bestowing resilience both on themselves and on an otherwise unsustainable neoliberal capitalism, summarily and provisionally to be identified as coping, hoping,
5: doping, and shopping. Coping, hoping, doping, and shopping.
6: Really? Yeah, That is an attempt Uh, to shortly uh, pull together an image of the sort of social life that the interregnum that I see coming will require for it to continue. What I'm not saying is that social life can be reduced to coping, hoping, doping, and shopping. My optimistic part is that human beings will not allow themselves to be reduced to such a life. Let's let's talk about coping. Coping is uh, uh, an attitude or an activity whereby people who lack uh, traditional Supports either from families or from uh, uh, the uh, social uh, services uh, work very hard to cope with uh, increasing pressures on their everyday life and you can observe this in uh, so lots of studies on on family life in the, in the United States and in Europe where two people uh, work full time. They try to raise two children. They live a very um, uh, sort of regulated, uh, uh, exhausting life in order to meet all the contingencies that hang together with uh, uh, competing in the labor market, uh, caring for others, caring maybe also for their parents in a world in which uh, uh, external help is increasingly less available. Now, uh, uh, what I sort of observe in ethnographic studies is that people actually can become proud of their ability to exhaust themselves in uh, in this struggle, so that they say, "Ah, we're we're coping, we're we're good," uh, and others are are less good or bad at at coping. So it becomes a matter of of pride to subject yourself to this rigid <laughs> discipline imposed on you. Uh, by the market and uh, and the career
5: and so on. Is that where the hoping by, comes from? You sort of turn your coping yeah, into something bigger.
6: Yeah, the, the hoping the hoping is a lot of things. I'm, I mean, in the book, I, I remarked that from my own experience in the United States, one word is sort of the word that keeps the society together, which is dream. Hmm. Y- you have to dream. You have to have dreams. And if you don't, other people will sort of look at you, think something's wrong with you. Hoping is extremely important for keeping a society sort of together as an individual activity that is, however, socially obligatory.
5: Doping, where doping, does doping come from?
6: Doping is also interesting. Um, it, we, know, we now know about the rapidly spreading uh, use of uh, uh, drugs uh, in, the, in the middle, in the center of the United States. Now, doping is is a way of in in the book in the book I say that there's two ways of of using uh, drugs. One is to increase your performance, and the other is to substitute for lack of performance, so to speak.
5: I, I want yeah? to quote, if I can, a passage from your book. Yeah. Before capitalism will go to hell, then it will, for the foreseeable future, hang in limbo, dead. Yeah. Or about to die from an overdose of itself, but still very much around as nobody will have the power to move its decaying body out of the (laughs) way. That's pretty stark imagery there. and I I get the impression you're not necessarily uh, in love with the the situation you're describing. I mean, decaying bodies and going to hell.
6: Yeah, yeah. But but what, what can you say? You're facing a situation that is extremely critical. Now, if you write such a, such a piece, you want to be heard and you want to make clear that people should think in, uh, in, in an imagery which they usually um, uh, do not want to apply because they, they want to go home and be happy. But um, uh, in my view, um, uh, there is a decaying body there and there is nobody who can, who can move it out of the way.
5: Not even Let the me, financial elites, not even the the new oligarchs, the people who are they are, are, they're, they're they are part of the
6: they are part of the decaying body, or they have there. There was, I think, two or three copies of the New Yorker back, and there was an article on survivalism among the American uh, very very rich. In my book, I say uh, I envisage a situation. In which inequality becomes so big that something happens that has never happened before in the history of human societies. That is that the that the uh, the elites of the society lose interest in the society as a whole because they can survive on their own. This this guy wrote this article about American billionaires. Someone, for example, buys the silo. Of an intercontinental missile, which is hardened against nuclear against uh, nuclear attack, and builds uh, sort of um, deep into the ground, builds apartments there uh, that are that he sells within a matter of a few weeks to New York financial. Uh, uh the, the, the bill, billionaires tech billionaires from california who all rent one of uh, buy one of these apartments because they they are afraid of a breakdown of social order and of people um, sort of taking guns and trying to 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 go after them uh, i think these people are not so unrealistic um they, they, i don't think they are they are obsessed they see better than most others the decaying body of a system that can no longer uh, keep itself together. I take this as as a very interesting um, uh, example of what I thought when I looked at the increase in inequality in our societies that we could be facing the moment when those that um, absorb and extract all the resources from these societies begin to think that they can sort of uh, uh, dissociate itself from it. And live their own lives.
3: You've gotta know that this ain't live but we could run.
0: You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, create our next economy with the next system project. What could be easier? Now, the clips in today's show couldn't be more clear. We may very well be living in the death throes of capitalism. And while technology has been able to sort of help us limp along, solving some of the problems while exacerbating others, the issues that are left have no quick fix. So it's time, probably far past time, to ask the question, What's next? Luckily, there are actually people working on the answer to that question, but they need and want you to be part of finding the solution. The Next System Project is an ambitious multi-year initiative aimed at thinking boldly about what is required to deal with the systemic challenges the United States faces now and in the future. Working with a broad group of researchers, theorists, and activists, they seek to launch a national debate on the nature of the Next System. Using the best research, understanding, and strategic thinking, on-the-ground organized and development experience, their goal is to refine and publicize comprehensive alternative political economic system models fundamentally different from anything we've seen before that are capable of delivering superior social, economic, and ecological outcomes. Admittedly, it's a big task, but ideas with these goals in mind are already being put forward. In May, the Next System project released Principles of a Pluralist Commonwealth. It's a project from the economist, historian, and activist Gar Alperovitz. This is an approach and model that offers a trajectory for wide-ranging institutional change towards real democracy over the long haul, guided by a transformative vision beyond both corporate capitalism and traditional state socialism. You can read this model and request a free copy of it for your local reading, and organizing groups by going to the next system project slash principles, But you don't have to rely on economists to propose the next system. You can contribute your thoughts and be part of a discussion about what the next system should be with the next system teach-in initiative. In 2016, teach-ins happened in communities on college campuses across the country, engaging everyday people in a discussion around the new economy and a type of world they want to live in. A complete archive of the resources created for these teach-ins is available at thenextsystem.org slash teach-ins. So if you're in a position to do so, you can go and get those resources and organize a meeting in your community today. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if having an economy that works for everyone is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about creating our next economy via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. And if you're thinking to yourself that you're having a hard enough time figuring out what you're going to serve your family for dinner tonight, much less trying to help humanity decide what economic system to shift to, we totally get it. And in that case, this activism segment is more of just an alert to let you know that there are people actually working on this problem. It is not all gloom, doom, and despair. But if you do have the time and the interest, we really do need your help because the writing is on the wall. The big questions are being asked, so make sure that if you can, that you get a say in what comes next. We've just heard clips today, starting with Caitlin Moran at Politics and Prose, discussing the revolution she's ready for. Casey Gerald presented his TED Talk about the importance of doubt. Ideas from the CBC talked in two parts with Wolfgang Streak about surviving post-capitalism. The economics podcast Upstream interviewed Richard Wolff about his view of the possible coming death of capitalism. And we just ended the show today with our activism in support of the Next System project, because the next system isn't going to build itself. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now we'll hear from you.
7: Hey, Jay, this is Josh in Dallas, Texas. Uh, A couple things. I wanted to first let you and your listeners know about a book I just finished called Woody Guthrie, American Radical. It's written by Will Kaufman and put out by University of Illinois Press. Uh, Really good book about progressive back in the 1930s. Uh, all the way through the 60s when he passed away he wasn't perfect obviously he had a lot of attitudes on race that kind of were in line with the times although he made a a shift later in his life that the book uh, covers but it covers um kind of all aspects of his life warts and all and um if you're interested at all in reading kind of about progressive roots and and uh the the fight for workers rights especially in the great depression uh, i highly recommend it And second, I just want to let you know, as far as uh, you're you're overworking yourself lately, I think for my money, I think one episode a week would be plenty. I mean, I think four episodes a month would be great. You know, I donate $6 to the show a month, so that's, you know, a little over a buck a show. I, I think that's a really good deal, and it would maybe cause you to not burn yourself out so quick, so I don't know how the rest of the listeners feel about it, but I think one a week would be perfectly fine. So anyway, keep up the great work, don't burn yourself out, and uh, stay awesome. Thanks, Jay. Bye.
3: Hey, this is Kyle in Portland, listening to the technology episode. got to say, at first, it kind of just sounded like people not being able to control themselves, bitching about getting tricked into something that they could control themselves. But then I started thinking, I'm a borderline alcoholic, which probably makes me an alcoholic. And uh, so what control do I have? So I got some advice. One thing I do when I wanna play guitar, I never start drinking beer unless I have the guitar in my hands already. I'm in my little practice room because otherwise, next thing I know, I have two beers and I'd rather just watch cartoons or something stupid. Um, I also have no screen days. I might come home on weekdays or wake up on the weekend and I need to get something done. No TV allowed. So I don't watch anything. I'll listen to a podcast or something like that when I eat. But yeah. I turn on the TV and then sometimes that's, that's the end for that phase productivity. And one last thing, speaking of listening to podcasts and stuff, sometimes it's good to just take a shower without your speaker in there or to do a commute or a whole day without any radio or podcast because Got other people's thoughts running around in your head all the time. Never get to hear you, huh? Anyway, thank you. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, today, I have a couple of excellent things to share with you. I want to update your lexicon. I want to add one thing to it, and I want to take one thing away. And so we're just going to dive right in. And apropos of today's episode, I want to tell you about a term that I know many of you already know, but I didn't know it. I just learned it recently, and there are a lot of other people who may not have heard it, so I'm going to share it with you. Uh, The new term that I have recently learned and fallen in love with is late capitalism. And rather than try to explain it to you, I'm just going to play this little clip where I first heard it from the propaganda podcast from Bitch Media. I think they do an excellent job of describing it. Late capitalism is a phrase that was first used by Marxist theorists at the turn of the 20th century. Over time, it's been used in different ways by different people. But right now, it's popping up all over as both a funny and cutting term to describe the absurdity and lack of dignity that comes along with our world's gaping inequality. For example, forcing Starbucks baristas to write race together on people's drink orders as a response to police brutality, that's late capitalism turning to crowdfunding sites like Indiegogo to raise money for a new oxygen tank for your grandmother because her insurance doesn't cover it and she'll die without it. That's late capitalism. Having fallen in love with the term immediately, I went to Urban Dictionary to see how it was defined there and and what sort of examples people would come up with. And uh, the one on there is that older people can buy blood transfusions from the young for $8,000 in the hopes of living longer. That's late capitalism. True story, by the way. At least a story that is actually being reported on. And then just for fun, I came up with one myself just now. Uh, this is from a couple of years ago during the holidays. Walmart was running an employee canned food drive encouraging employees to bring in canned food for their own underpaid Walmart employees. Late capitalism. So... Use it, enjoy it, add it to your lexicon. If you can come up with some examples of late capitalism, please call in and leave us messages. The number again, 202-999-3991. And now I want to tell you about something you should remove from your lexicon. Not that most of you probably use this term all that often. I know I don't. But it's, it's this is going to be one of those things where a small percentage of people are going to be like, yeah, I know. And I think a larger percentage are going to be like, Wow. I had literally never thought about that, and that makes so much sense. That is such bullshit. But because I never thought about it, all this never crossed my mind. So let me tell you about this. This goes back to just the previous episode where I was telling, yet again, the story of this conservative columnist who was trying to argue that Conservatives understand gender and sexual orientation fluidity better than the LGBT community does, mystifyingly, and was then arguing that since gender and sexuality are so fluid, we should all just be able to flow our genders and sexual orientations into a heteronormative Judeo-Christian nuclear family, and God's plan will be fulfilled and we'll all be better off for it. So I, I, I tell this story and uh, you know, sort of paraphrase him in that way. And then I get this excellent email from Charles, which just opens my mind in a way that, as I said, it's the sort of thing that never crossed my mind. So Charles writes, In episode 1122, you use the term Judeo-Christian uncritically, and you should know that this term is basically garbage, and considered by most Jews to be anti-Semitic. On almost every social issue where the term Judeo-Christian is brought up, Jews oppose the attitude that is being presented there. Furthermore, the term is used specifically to create an illusion of an alliance between Judaism and Christianity, parentheses, our longtime oppressors and murderers, close parentheses, and is especially popular now to set Jews and Christians as together against Islam. Furthermore, if you look at usage— The term came into use shortly after World War II, but before that was basically never used. Until the guilt derived from the Holocaust became an issue, Christians worked very hard to say, we're not like Jews, on a regular basis. So the term itself is disingenuous on another level as well. So in summary... Please do not use the term uncritically, even in mocking the position of right-wing Christians, because it ascribes views to a marginalized group that the group does not share, groups that group with their worst historical oppressor, and attempts to create a unified front against a different marginalized group. Best, Charles. And I've got to say that I really should have seen this coming. I really should have... It should have clicked in my mind that there was a problem with that term. Because I don't know about you, but when I hear the term Judeo-Christian, the image that literally pops to my mind is Bill O'Reilly talking about how the world should conform to his vision of how he thinks things should be, and it is almost literally never used any other time. So what Charles is writing there rings absolutely true to me, and and as I responded directly to him in an email, it is literally one of those things that I I just never even thought about. I completely accepted it uncritically as part of the political lexicon that just this is things everyone says, and we kind of know what it means. But you take like three seconds to think about it and you think, huh, Judeo-Christian, like why would we do that? Why does that phrase make sense and you know, arguably mean something to people in this country? So well done, Charles. Thank you very much for writing in with that. So there you go. One for one trade. You can't use Judeo-Christian anymore, but you get to use late capitalism and everyone's happy. As always, keep the comments coming in. The number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. You can now do that over on Patreon. I know a lot of people are excited about that. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it. We've been asking you for a long time to leave us glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and we've just turned on that feature on Facebook so you can uh, you know rate and Review the show on Facebook where it'll actually be seen by a lot of people in your network. You know how that works, social networking, uh, algorithms, et cetera, et cetera. You can, of course, help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, at outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show, from Best of leftcom